my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Maryland. Really excited tonight, as always, for you know our podcast and really great topic, an important topic, and a topic that is continues to kind of blow up on social media. And just um, the more you learn about it, the more you kind of look around your schools, I think, and, and start to question things and, and want to make sure that we're doing right by kids. So I'm really excited tonight, but I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca, who's going to tell us how to participate tonight. Rebecca? Hi, everybody. Um, all right, so we're really excited to have you participate as always. And the easiest way, if you're watching us live, is to log into your YouTube account and comment right alongside the video. We will be looking for your comments there and questions. Also, if you're watching at a later time um, or listening on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you get podcasts, please use the hashtag site podcast and tag us in your questions and comments and we can continue this conversation over time. And now I'm going to hand it off to Eric who will introduce our wonderful guest. Hi everybody, my name is Eric and I am a school psychologist also working in the state of Connecticut. And we are excited to have Dr. Timothy Shanahan with us. Uh, several of us were talking earlier and we've been following Dr. Shanahan for quite a while and uh, in our conversation earlier, one of the things that stands out as a school psychologist is that many of the referrals we have have to do with reading assessments, why children aren't reading, whether or not there's a disability, uh, what interventions might look like, and how do we support and identify those needs. So we are excited to talk with Dr. Shanahan about reading and literacy. And uh, I'm going to introduce him. He, Dr. Timothy Shanahan is Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he was founding director of the University Center for Literacy. Previously, he was director of reading for the Chicago Public Schools and is author and editor of more than 200 publications on literacy education. His research emphasizes connections between reading, writing, liter reading and writing, literacy in the disciplines, and improvement of reading achievement. He's past president of the International Literacy Association and has served as a member of the advisory board of the National Institute for Literacy under both President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama. Uh, something of particular interest to me is that he helped lead the National Reading Panel convened at the request of Congress to evaluate research on the teaching of reading and a major influence on reading education. He's also chaired two other federal research review panels the National Literacy Panel for Language, Minority Children and Youth, and the National Early Literacy Panel and helped write Common Core State Standards. Uh, Dr. Shanahan has a website that has a wealth of information on it, and that is shanahanliteracy.com. And so we welcome you, Dr. Shanahan. And uh, perhaps to start off, I really would love to know a little bit about what led up to the National Reading Panel and perhaps some of the problems with reading instruction prior to that. <laughs> we may be here for a while for that, but uh, just <laughs> that maybe hour that will be done. <laughs> well, back in the 1990s, um, there were no, for any number of reasons, and probably the biggest one being that the national assessment was showing that kids in the United States were accomplishing the lowest literacy levels that they'd achieved in the period that NAEP had been testing kids. Uh, national assessment started in 1969. I think their first report was 1970 or 71. And, and uh, 
you know, initially scores had been rising for about 10 or 15 years. In those days, they didn't test every other year. They tested twice a decade. And uh, scores initially were going up. Uh, differences among different parts of the country and different, uh, you know, uh, racial and economic backgrounds of the kids, uh, you know, were, were getting closer. Uh, things looked really good. And then late 1980s, early 1990s, the bottom seemed to fall out of that. All of a sudden, instead of going up, things actually went down. And, and instead of, you know, you know, maybe just losing a little bit of ground, we actually were seeing lower scores than we'd seen when we started. And so that certainly got a few things going. And then there were big arguments in some of the states. How do you fix that? Uh, it wasn't just in California, but California was certainly a hotbed of of the the arguments and, and what the news magazines came to label the, the reading wars, uh, that these were arguments, kind of well, not, not very well-defined arguments over, you know, do you teach phonics or you, do you not teach phonics? Do you use textbooks or do you just put kids in books that they'd like to read? You know, uh, do you give explicit instruction or do kids figure it out? Do you include writing or do you, you know, you know, just a whole bunch of things. Should kids be taught with literature or other kinds of texts? And uh, in some places, those arguments got so angry and so, um, in a way, I guess I'd say out of control, that uh, we started to note at a national level that parents' confidence in the schools, confidence in the teachers was going down. And so in the late 1990s, the U.S. Department of Education and the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development and the White, you know, the White House and everybody decided maybe we ought to do something about this. Um, both to address the problem, but also to arrest this decline in, in confidence um, in a public institution, in a, a very important public institution. And so they, the Congress passed a law uh, requiring that a group of, of scientists and parents and teachers and uh, principal be um, appointed uh, to review the research and to make a determination of what should be done, what worked. Um, not a not recommendations, not what do you guys think? In fact, one person on the panel actually resigned when he found out that's not what it was, that uh, we actually had to review the research and, and make a, a, a determination of fact. By law, we weren't actually allowed to give any kind of opinions um, or recommendations. Uh, they didn't want to hear that. They wanted to know what did the research say. These, this, argue, this ongoing argument or this war uh, both sides were saying the research, you know, finds this, therefore you have to do it our way. And they would tell each other exactly the opposite ways. And I, I remember, uh, you know, so they, they, they call for the appointment of this and uh, there, are, there are nominations and the nominations can come from the field. Any group can make nominations and any, any individual, I guess, could put themselves forward. Uh, the, the government agencies themselves made nominations, the Department of Education and so on. Uh, they got 300 and I think it was 399 or it was 200, it must have been 299 nominations. And uh, they selected 15 people from that and negotiated that somehow between the Department of Education and NICHD. 
and put us in place. And the two, we were operated by NICHD, but the, the directors of that sort of stayed away from us. We were, you know, they, everybody wanted us to just kind of work on our own for the most part. And, and we did that. Uh, one time I, I, I ran, happened to run into a, the, the current secretary, uh, at current at the time, secretary of education uh, at, in a, a restaurant and talked to him for about five minutes. <laughs> and they were fearful that they had violated the agreements <laughs> between them. Uh, so it was uh, kind of a bizarre uh, event, uh, you know, accidental and didn't mean anything, but, but scared the heck out of the government. So they, were, <laughs> so they put this in, in place. And I, I remember we go to the first meeting and they did put, provide a dinner. They brought us together, had a dinner the evening before. And I remember them going on and on and on talking about how school superintendents and curriculum directors and so on uh, are really being victimized in what's going on in these arguments over reading, that they want to know what to do. And everybody come, every consultant comes in and tells them that it's, uh, you know, that research says you got to do this. And and each one of them contradicts the other, and they're just, you know, at sixes and sevens over it. And I, I'm, a, I'm always a bit of a skeptic, and I've got to admit, I kind of sat there with my glass of wine, going, "Oh yeah, I'm sure that happens all the time." Uh, once we were appointed and we're in place and we're doing the work, before we'd had any findings or even made decisions of exactly how we'd do the work, we made a presentation at the American Educational Research Association. It was very large. Uh, attendance and uh, got done with that presentation. And the first person came to me was a, 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 a an assistant superintendent from someplace in upstate New York. And he said, man, are we happy you're doing this. You wouldn't believe every consultant comes in and tells us. And it was like exactly what they told us they were hearing. And so I kind of went, oh, well, maybe they didn't just make that up. <laughs> so the reason it was done was really to try to settle an argument uh, that wasn't serving uh, America's children or the American, uh, you know, America very well, and that was actually hurting education in some serious ways, and they wanted it settled. And, and frankly, they thought, they, they misunderstood how this was going to work. They thought it could be settled in a matter of, of months and that, you know, by within a year, we would have all this work done and they'd be able to you know, legislate based on it and so on and so forth, not understanding that there were literally thousands of studies of reading education and that it's very different than the kinds of medical and engineering problems that they've used in the, they, they've used this approach on in the past. So, so that's, that's how that came to be and why it happened. And it was, I, I'd have to say, I think very useful for the country and education. Mm -hmm. Have you seen, um, so did things change? And like, did that, it was very useful. I, because I, 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 I hear the debate still, still people yelling at each other on Twitter and, um, you know, people writing open letters and things of that. Did, and, yeah, initially, uh, Rachel, it, it there was a, an immediate blowback of, of people who weren't getting what they wanted, who were, you know, angry about it. I mean, for example, but when they announced that they were going to do this in the first place and that they were going to even have such a panel, 
uh, you know, very noted person in, in reading education, major researcher, you know, came out and denounced the idea uh, because there were um, ethical uh, uh, protections that if you were going to make any money out of this, you couldn't do it. And so, you know, we all at the penalty of perjury had to, you know, give them all of our economic data and show that we weren't working for some company that could, you know, that it, somehow we'd profit from this. Hmm. And, and you know, this fellow was a, a, a publisher of, a, it was an author of one of the core reading programs. And so he, he was essentially saying, the only people who know anything about reading are on core reading programs and therefore no one else can review the research and this is ridiculous. And then when the results came out, you know, he denounced it and, and, and oh, this is a terrible, terrible thing. So there were, there were those kinds of things. There were people who they didn't like particular findings or they, you know, were mad that we didn't look at something that they thought should be looked at and so on. And so there was a bit of a blow up. And I think some of that was media fed, um, there are particular people you can go to who will complain about anything and are happy to be in the press complaining. And, and, and so they always run to them. What's the terrible thing that they did? You know, that kind of thing. Um, so there was that, but it settled down really quickly. And if you look it, the citations that the national reading panel got in the scientific literature, uh, just, you know, it very clear that it was accepted largely by the scientific community it really, things really quieted down, things really settled down for a while. Reading achievement did rise um, over that period of time, which people seem to like to forget about. And uh, in the last, I'm gonna say two or three years, it's all started to unwind and blow up again. And, and folks are kinda playing all kinds of games. And, and as you say, I see all this stuff too. And the, it does certainly look like I don't think it's quite as bitter as it was in the 1990s, but it certainly is back to some extent and, and maybe increasing. So uh, it <laughs> uh, a famous line out of politics is that there are no final victories. And maybe that applies even when it comes to, you know, it, the application of educational research that just because you you uh, settled things down for a while doesn't mean you can keep things quiet forever. Um, so, hmm. yeah, and I think that um, it's a little bit, I mean, now that we have social media and, and that is such a interesting uh, dynamic in itself that it just, you know, the pot can get restirred and you have all these groups. And I, I think that a group that has kind of sprung up more, um, maybe via social media is kind of dyslexia advocacy. And we see a lot of people, uh, you know, obviously who have a vested interest in reading instruction there um, and in use social media pretty effectively. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, social media is so interesting to me because <laughs> It's good and it's bad. <laughs> oh, it, it's you know when when you see somebody put something up that's baloney and there are twenty five people who respond to it and point out that it's baloney, you go, oh, it's wonderful, this is great. And then when you see somebody who's maybe largely on the side that you think is right and trying to follow the research, but then all of a sudden starts making claims that go beyond the research, then you know my, I start tearing my hair out and going, oh, I wish we could shut all this stuff down and. I don't think this is helping um, when everybody has a say so, no matter how little or how much they know, <laughs> that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, 
you know, maybe maybe we'll we'll get better at sorting that out. Of course, reading studies that have been done at places like Stanford, looking at how well people read social media and how well they understand it and whether they can be misled easily and so on, suggests that we're absolute idiots when it comes to that stuff. So I think we've got a ways to go uh, before we're going to uh, know what to do there. But I do think social media is probably one of the reasons why things have kind of blown up again. I also think one of, an, another reason it's blown up again is that we haven't seen any kind of uh, uh, improvement on a national basis in literacy over the last dozen years. Uh, and, and that, or a little bit more than that, 14 years, I guess. Um, that uh, is starting to bug people again, thank goodness, uh, mm -hmm. because of the, the role literacy plays in our society is so big. Uh, and social media is just one of the ways that it's increased the need for literacy. I mean, it used to be that you didn't have to uh, be connected 24 hours a day. You didn't have uh, as much uh, uh, communication coming into your household uh, that was through writing and so, so on and so forth. And so when we look at the economic and social changes that have taken place in society, literacy is just increasing in its importance mm -hmm. and having this persistent problem of substantial numbers of people who can't fully participate in the, the social and, 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 and civic and economic benefits of our society is that does weigh on people and does weigh on governments and so on. Um, so I think all of that has, has kind of conspired to make this uh, oh, something to war over yet again. <laughs> I know that we have some viewer questions. Um, let's see. Um, let's see why, I guess, I think you kind of answered some of this about why, why the more recent, and we've talked about the past, you know, two years or so, why the more recent blow up, what's, um, why have things changed? Just. Well, you know, one of the things that has changed is, is that for a period of time after the national reading panel, there were a number of government efforts and, and, you know, state efforts to take advantage of that that new knowledge, that new information. And I, I think probably the most popular reading programs in say 2003 or four or something were probably largely or, or mainly consistent with what uh, uh, the panel was finding. Uh, over time, you know, teachers, teachers are just like everybody else. They like things to to uh, be interesting all the time and fun and and uh, you know not just for the kids but for themselves uh, and and so you know you use a program for a few years you teach a particular way for a few years and and whether it's working well or not you know you you might get kind of tired of that you burn out a bit we're not terrific as a profession in our school districts that manage the you know the the, the teaching force don't. Uh, don't worry about this too much. But the fact is people get burned out on doing something over and over and over again. And they, you know, the next time that there's a choice to pick a new program, instead of going, well, that's been working, you know, what could we get that's consistent with what we've been doing? It's what could we do that's really different than what we're doing? Let's shake things up. And shaking things up might be good for making popcorn, but it isn't wonderful for, coming up with really strong education for our boys and girls. 
Do you think um, that part of the problem in the blow up is that there's so many pockets of, uh, of different um, groups doing doing some of this work and this research, you know, the, the teach the schools of um, teacher education and the psychologists and then the neuroscientists and um, they don't seem to always talk to each other um, like like the work that you did in the reading. Panel. Yeah, they don't always talk to each other, but the fact is when they do, um, in my experience, are usually some of the best professional experiences I've had. These big disagreements, frankly, are usually not among the mainline researchers. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's one of those things that it's hard for people to believe that, that they're absolutely sure that there must be this huge divide in the research profession. And I'm not going to say there are no differences or that people don't line up differently. But the fact is, when you, you put researchers, people who are actually doing the work, not the old guys like me who want to, you know, refight old battles and stuff like that. But the people who are, they are shockingly and, and wonderfully honest about what they know and what they don't know. Uh, they are very good about connecting their ideas with each other. And it's, it's amazing how consistent the findings are. Uh, many years ago, the uh, I believe it was the um, uh, National Academy of Education hosted some meetings and, and the first and these were on second language literacy with young children and they brought together a very diverse group of scientists you know educators and focused focused people like me focused on literacy and other focus uh, focused on the English learners themselves and so on and so forth. And you think, oh, this is going to be you know, argumentative and divisive. And it was one of the best meetings I'd ever been to. It was just amazing how honest people were about what they didn't know and where they had doubts. And, and they'd found a particular thing, but they could see the limitations of it and, and were interested in how other people thought it connected. And everybody was so impressed. They said, let's do that again, but let's bring in state policymakers next time. And this is going to be just as wonderful. And boy, it's and it was terrible. It was the policymakers came in and said, we're going to do it this way. We know how we want it. We can find a study that will support what we're doing. And it was one of the worst meetings I've ever been to in my life. Wow. <laughs> it just, it was crazy. And, and of course, the researchers all kind of clamped down and you know they got very, not so much defensive, but they just didn't share very much information because they didn't want to be part of all that. You know, it was too ideological. It wasn't how they focused their thinking and their their work. So, I'd have to say that there there's a, a very diverse group of questions and people answering those questions with different expertise, and yet with a, a an incredible uh, consistency. And, and connectedness to the to the research findings themselves, and I think that's uh, the the big message. When you actually see somebody trying to pull this stuff together, that it is so consistent. It's uh, why some of us, uh, you know, just <laughs> wring our hands when we see the arguments, even when people think they're helping or they think they're on our side, uh, where they're maybe arguing against a research finding that they don't like. 
It's a research finding, folks. It's not an opinion. The data came out a particular way. There might be a reason why that happened. And you might be able to figure that out by analyzing the, the, how the study was done or who it was done with. And, and maybe you could, you, you could do another study that would, would, would show some a variation with that. But people get crazy that, well, you know, we want to know what your finding is before we're going to support you. It's, that's, that's really not where we want to be. That's mm -hmm. not the best thing for kids. It's not the best thing for our society or frankly, I don't think it's very good for us either. <laughs> I think, I mean, that's both refreshing one that, that, that there is this body of evidence that there are so much agreement amongst all the experts, um, you know, that we, that the reading panel was so successful in identifying the things that we need to know. And I think that a lot of the frustration is that it's not making it into the schools. And I, I'm sure you're familiar with Emily Hanford's, um, you know, podcast that she did that kind of, do you feel like that was a good representation? Did she do a good job with that? She did a very good job with that. I mean, I'm not gonna say I never disagree with Emily. I actually helped her in some small ways with that project. I mean, she, <laughs> I've said it. I know a lot of my colleagues have said it about Emily and others will use terms like, well, she's just a journalist and it was just, not the right right way to say it anyway. There is a difference between a journalist and a, say an educational researcher or an educator or an educational psychologist. But Emily, to her credit, or Miss Hanford, to her credit, um, spent, she took a, a sabbatical. Uh, you know, her, her, her uh, employer gave her a sabbatical and she used that sabbatical. She took graduate courses in literacy. She was, you know, spent considerable time interviewing people and reading studies and tracking things down. And I know she was really doing a lot of tracking things down because I helped her with a little of that. Um, and, and so the, the fact is she spent the kind of time that most educational reporters never get to spend on a story. And so she really uh, got it right and tried to get it right. Are there details that she doesn't necessarily know much about or that, you know, yeah, absolutely. Are there par other parts of the problem that she's not highlighting that probably deserve attention as well? Yeah, I think so. But man, did she do a good job. And wouldn't it be wonderful if, if all the reporters in education uh, were able to spend that kind of time and resource and, and then did it as well as she did? Because obviously she's smart and talented and all of that. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed listening to because she explained everything in a pretty clear way. And I, mm -hmm. I recommend, you know, my the teachers that I work with, you know, that give give that a lesson because if you can spare an hour to listen to it, even if she's got three podcasts on the same kind of topic, but just people in Emily's Guild are just they are experts, not at literacy per se, but they're experts at communication and they know how to do that extremely well. And uh, but they often don't have sufficient knowledge you know they have so many different stories to cover and so when one of them gets an opportunity to dig that deep which doesn't happen that often not just in education but in journalism generally uh it's it's wonderful and then to see somebody who can actually has the skills to take advantage of that and to use it because she does communicate that information highly accurately very clearly it's good stuff okay um we have a viewer question we touched on it a little bit um will asks do you think that part of the challenge to find a singular or a few ways to increase literacy um, are a function of our burgeoning knowledge of the brain 
This is one I'll probably upset some folks. I, I don't think so. I, 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 I hope someday that'll be the case. At this stage, uh, the way I would describe it is I think our, our, our neural research, which is fascinating stuff, and I have some good friends who do such work, um, it essentially what it's doing is identifying neural correlates for things that we already know. And, and so, you know, you, you go in with an intervention and, and let's say the psychologist has tested kids and found some gap and the teachers then go in and address the gap. And we can see that the kid, you know, now can do a particular thing that he couldn't. And now they're able to say, oh, look, something in the brain changed when, when we did that. Well, we knew something had changed. The kid was responding appropriately, but it's cool that they can measure that and identify that. Someday, it might even be possible that that'll become part of a, a diagnostic battery so that we'll, when kids are, 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 are two or three years old, maybe we can identify uh, potential literacy problems early enough and, 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 and precisely enough that it'll be, have value. Uh, it might be possible that... Uh, we'd be able to monitor uh, kids learning uh, better uh, as they go through a, uh, an intervention so that we could see, for example, when a kid is just getting overloaded. I mean, I, I, a good teacher might be able to see that and back off and give the kid a little space and then come back and teach it again. But boy, if we had some ways of measuring things like that so that we could see that, that neural pairing process that takes place as, as the, the, the various uh, uh, lines of communication among neurons is, is, is set up in the brain, that would be wonderful. But we're nowhere close to that. Um, when I talk to, uh, again, neuroscientists, they know that. Uh, they're very excited about their work. They think it might someday have great potential. But I don't think it tells us anything that we don't already know but it is so cool that they're starting to figure out how to see that in the brain. And uh, that's that's going to be useful someday, but I don't think we're quite there yet. And, and, and I'm not sure how close we are, but my hunch is not very. That makes sense. And I, I wonder, once we're able to see those connections, I'm not sure we're able to intervene at that level. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly right. But that doesn't mean we won't be able to someday. Right. Uh, you know, and, and that's why you know, science is, is a wonderful thing, but it, it, it's not this pointed, extremely precise tool. You know, it might be a generation or two before we're able to, to take advantage of that, Eric. And yet hmm. uh, we certainly want them doing that kind of work so that someday, it, it you know, we could take advantage of it. Um, but yeah, uh, at this stage, there isn't a single intervention or diagnostic tool that's come out of any of the neural work. Uh, I know it gets talked about as part of the science of reading. To me, there, there are two ways you could talk about the science of reading, I guess. I'll, let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. One would be the science of reading. And the science of reading is the whole collection of all the scientific knowledge that we have on any aspect of reading. And so, gee, does that include those neural studies? Yes, it does. Does it include um, uh, surveys of what people like to read? Yep, includes that too. Includes a very wide range of stuff. I think what we really want is the science of reading instruction. And the neurological stuff plays some role there because it can identify some of those correlates. 
But frankly, the, the most basic thing you need to have in a science of reading instruction is some evidence that whatever you're doing gives somebody some learning benefit. And, and so if you told me you have some really cool thing that causes some neurological, you know, some, some teaching technique or some series or program that creates some kind of a change in kids' brains, I, I honestly don't care unless you can show me that he can read better. Um, you know, it's because let's be perfectly honest. And what every neurologist knows is the brain changes based on its learning and experience. And so it does, there's no question if you teach it phonics, it'll do certain things. But if you get it to memorize words, it'll do certain things. If you teach it to recognize faces, it'll do certain things. It, the brain is, 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 we know it learns. Uh, so the, the, the notion that, oh, look, I can see, you know, that there's some activity over here instead of over there is, is great. But you can see that on all teaching and, and, you know, exactly what that means and what we can do with that instructionally uh, is, is open to question. So I'm always, no matter what wonderful correlates or, uh, you know, descriptive research you have that shows that this thing could be important until you can show me that you can use it somehow to make things better for some kids somehow. It just, to me, it doesn't fall in the science of instruction. Once it does fall on that, then everything that informs us about that piece of it is, is important and valuable. And I want to know about it and including those neural correlates. So <laughs> I don't know if that helps or hinders, but it's, <laughs> that's my favorite. <laughs> I think that the brain is so kind of seductive and appealing to people that, you know, people just, mm -hmm. oh, the brain, so it, it gives a credibility somehow, um, you know. But. You know, when it, back in the 19, let me think, like 1970s when I was doing my graduate work and taking my neuro neurology courses, you know, we knew so much less, uh, and, and yet we, everybody was fascinated by it then too. Uh, you know, here we are, you know, 45 years later and, Frankly, we still haven't pulled anything out of it that we can do. It's kind of the same thing that we've done with computer science, that there aren't a whole lot of advances that we thought maybe we're, we were going to get, but and we still might, uh, but we haven't yet. So science takes a while. Uh, practitioners can't always uh, practice at the cutting edges of science. In fact, we don't really want you to because sometimes we find things out that turn out not to be right, you know, as we as we look at them more closely. So we don't want stuff to come to market too fast. And yet, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's the problem on, on the, the neural work. It, I think it's more what you just said, Rachel. It's, it's so attractive. It's so interesting. Um, it, it's so brilliant what they're doing and these are brilliant brilliant people doing incredible things but boy someday someday it might be you know hugely valuable and and the stuff that uh people like me have contributed more behaviorally maybe won't be valued as much and that's fine that's that's where it should go if it can but we're not there yeah that was so good i loved that um uh, we have a viewer question that I think is a nice next um, step. Uh, John asks, isn't part of our problem that we're still looking for a single test score to say yes or no, this is a learning disability? I think that similar to the allure of talking about the brain and brain function are our assessment practices. If we, if we have a 
nice little screener that gives us the, you know, a percentage of probability that, that something's going on with a student we feel powerful and maybe helpful. What do you think about assessment and our, our need to put numbers on these things? Well, I mean, I this is one I'm I, I, boy I'm talking to school psychologists, and I'm going to say I think we do too much of that. Uh, you know, great. Uh, you want to hang up now, or you know, should we? <laughs> I could. Say I'm some, with you. I agree. <laughs> I, could, I could do some tweeting, telling what a run I am, you know, so that your listeners don't have to. Uh, the the fact is, um, I, I think we expect too much from assessment. I, I think that. Uh, we all spend a huge amount of time in graduate school learning all the limitations of these things and what standard error of measurement is and how to calculate such things. And then we go into practice and totally ignore uh, all that part of our training. And I, <laughs> that might be a problem. Uh, and, and part of that is a, a societal problem, admittedly. It isn't just with our professions. It's, uh, you know, people do want a, a you know, single estimate. Again, when I look at the research, uh, and I'm not the best practitioner of this, but boy, oh boy, you know, when you look at the body of research on teaching reading, it is not uncommon in a study that whatever the incredible intervention is that somebody's trying to put in place, they've got four or five or six different measures. They're not looking at a single thing. They're not taking a chance that it's going to work on, on A unless they've included B, C, D, and E just in case. Uh, and so a lot of what we know is because of, of researchers not limiting themselves to a single measure, or sometimes not even to the best measure at the time. A lot of times they're making stuff up to try to come up with a concept that doesn't even exist yet. And, and that's all, you know, that that's, there, there are limitations to that, but that there are benefits to that. When you get into schools, you know, we do some really stupid things when we look at that one measure. And, and so... In, in my part of the field, a, a real popular classroom measure uh, is Dibbles, widely used, right? Or And there are a handful of other instruments, Ames Web, and I'm not trying to include in it anybody, exclude anybody, let's include them all in. Uh, well, what do you do with those? Well, you, you take a particular skill, and it's a skill shown to be important, so it's not something trivial, and we're going to find out how well kids do with it. And, and kids who are low in that, lower than we would expect or low, you know, the test suggests that kids who do that poorly are going to do worse on some other test. And then we're going to teach the hell out of whatever that thing is. And that's very reasonable. And that seems really smart. But let's say that you think that reading is made up of a dozen major components and that there are all kinds of pieces to it. The notion that you can measure three or four of those and that you're going to use that to determine huge amounts of what you're going to do. And you're going to, well, since I can't measure these other eight really well right now, I'll just ignore those. If the kids are having trouble with those, they're not. In fact, they might even get less instruction in those really important other eight things simply because we're chasing this one test score over here. And so I always worry about that. We don't have... We have some good measures of reading comprehension, but we don't have any quick screeners that are like a, you know, a phoneme awareness test or an oral reading fluency test. And so we're going to give, you know, I, I'm a big supporter of teaching oral reading fluency. You've run one of those tests. You find that the kids aren't fluent. You're going to have an oral reading fluency intervention, pull this kid out of the class. Terrific. So far, so good. 
but I'm going to assume he's probably also low in reading comprehension. Yeah, but you don't have a measure of that, so we're not going to teach that. Now, I'm going to say <laughs> that if I'm going to take a big chunk of time to, to try to bolster this other weakness, I'm just going to assume that there's this more language-oriented weakness, too, until I get a good measure. So I'm going to do the opposite of what the caller is describing. He, he or she is describing what's really going on. But I'm going to say, gee, I got that single test score that's pulling my attention. I'm not going to allow it to pull my attention all the way over there. I'm going to say there's some other things that I've got to worry about under these circumstances. And therefore, this the, the intervention is going to be a little bit more complicated than maybe we've been doing. Uh, and maybe some of that will be wasted. But the correlations tend to be so high among some of these pieces that to just assume that there's a specific deficit that's going to fix the whole thing is, is foolishness. And so we've got to make sure that the rest of the picture, as well as we know it, is, is getting addressed too. Uh, it's great if we've got a few of those measures and we can say, well, we know it isn't a phonics problem, but the, the kid still isn't fluent. You know, we can see he can decode as well as other fluent kids. So we know that's not the problem. Don't have to worry about having enough there. But I can't be sure about his vocabulary. Can't be sure about his reading comprehension. Can't be sure about what his background knowledge is contributing to this. So I'm gonna make sure that we're not just giving him this special intervention and fluency. We're gonna do some of those other things too uh, and not get pulled, uh, well, you know, un, uh, just, you know, inappropriately by that one score or that one test. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, especially as school psychologists, we, we tend to isolate skill sets without considering perhaps that the skill we're measuring is an amalgamation of a variety of skills. And we expect that that one number or one skill set is going to be the answer that we're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things NICHD did, you know, they had spent tens, hundreds of millions of dollars on studying, um, you know, reading disabilities and, 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 you know, trying to come up with solutions. That's why we pay so much attention to things like phonemic awareness now. Uh, one of the things they found that I, I'm always surprised people don't pay attention to, no matter which side of the reading wars they're on, is towards the end of all that work that Reed Lyon was leading and other people were involved in, they found that a very, they, they found that they could go in and intervene and help kids with these phonemic and, and, and uh, uh, phonological uh, interventions that were clearly improving kids' literacy and clearly helpful. But they were also finding that a very substantial proportion, certainly the majority of kids, whose problems they had addressed effectively were still having reading problems because there had either been a latent language problem that they hadn't noticed initially or a late developing language problem that wasn't there when they were dealing with it or you know or, or, when they first identified the kids but by the time they were done intervening with them had become a problem and that certainly should suggest to people that just going after one little piece of it and and addressing that can be a piece of the the response that we want to give but it can only be that in most cases I find that, so I, you know, I evaluate a child who's struggling with reading and I write my report recommendations and I feel like 
because tier one is so important. And if my district isn't doing tier one appropriately, I already know what my recommendations are going to be because I already know what these kids are missing out on. So I know, for example, that, you know, my district use leveled books and they don't really do phonics systematically and explicitly and they don't address, you know, phonemic awareness. So I already know like what my recommendations are going to be because tier one isn't sufficient. And that to me as a school psychologist is frustrating because that's kind of beyond my control. Um, what, what are your thoughts on like, if, you know, in designing, uh, the perfect tier one, I know that a lot goes into it, but what are really crucial components that should be involved in instruction and intervention? The way I handled it in Chicago, when I was uh, responsible for 437,000 boys and girls and 26,000 teachers uh, and was calling the shots on these, could put mandates in place and so on. So I don't, you know, this is one of those cases where I can actually say what I did without, well, you know, we had a whole team of people and here's what they concluded. No, I actually was, I guess, the czar of reading and I could, uh, I could do, you know, Rachel, I didn't have to give an opinion. I could actually make a decision uh, what I did is, is something that had come out of my, my work in schools, especially in the 1990s, and that was further shaped by my experiences on the Re National Reading Panel and looking at the research as closely and thoroughly as we did, uh, that I really concluded that there are three things that matter. And it really is quite simple initially. Uh, first thing is amount of instruction that kids get or amount of academic experience, let's say it that way, because practice does matter, you know, so amount of academic experience, huge thing, we don't pay enough attention to it. Maybe some of those places where you're saying, gee, I don't think that the tier one is good enough. Sometimes it's just there isn't enough of tier one uh, that they're not actually using the time terribly well. Second is a curriculum issue. What do we teach? And that's really where the National Reading Panel helped. Uh, it, it really said very little about how to teach. Almost everything was what needed to be taught to kids that, you know, there were particular things in the curriculum that if you focused on those, kids did better. Uh, and so, you know, what needs to go in there? I organized it a particular way, but essentially, you know, there are a whole bunch of things that go in there, but certainly uh, one of the pieces is words and parts of words. And that includes certainly phonemic awareness and phonics and the alphabet and that kind of thing, spelling, those are, are part of it, but so is morphology and knowing the meanings of words. And so I, I would argue, and I, I decided in Chicago that our boys and girls in first grade were gonna spend as much time on words as say our sixth or eighth or 12th graders were going to, but obviously as the decoding issues are accomplished, as the kids have learned those things, those go away but the morphology and vocabulary parts of it never go away. Those are a constant part of it. A second piece is oral reading fluency. And it, it also includes silent reading fluency, but that's a tough one to measure. And so, you know, the whole point of doing oral reading fluency is to build silent reading fluency. Uh, but we've spent a lot of time on that. And that's something that's often neglected, um, which amazes me. Um, the third piece is, is reading comprehension and learning from text. There are particularly things we can teach kids to do that will improve their, their reading, that'll help them understand it. We can make them more intentional. We can make them more self-aware uh, and, and you know things like that. And the fourth one is writing. 
that the kids have to learn to write and they need to learn to use their writing to, to support their reading. And so I mandated that we taught kids to read two to three hours a day, you know, 120 to 180 minutes, not a single amount because kids don't all need the same amount. You got, you know, some schools are in much more challenged situations and so on, but two to three hours a day divided roughly equally between words, uh, fluency, comprehension, and, and writing. And what we saw was, uh, Frankly, well, I, I said there were three things. I, I, I gave you the time, I gave you the curriculum. And the third one is quality of instruction. Some people are more efficient or more effective in their delivery. Some people explain things better. Some people put more repetition in. Uh, some people get more interaction of the kids um, in the same amount of time, in the same kind of lesson. And so there are a number of things we know about the delivery of lessons, like how important it is that the kids know the purpose of what it is that they're working on so that they can try to learn. Uh, or, and, and that the teacher know the purpose of it so she can explain it to the kids, which sometimes doesn't happen either. And so there, there really are those three things. So the way we organized it was around those times and, and teaching those things and then poured in a ton, you know, huge amounts of professional development well beyond what most school districts usually do. And we saw the biggest learning gains that we'd ever seen. And, and, you know, our kids were doing better than they'd ever done. And the poorest schools were growing as fast as the more advantaged schools and so on. doesn't solve all the problems, but it certainly moved things forward. And so, you know, keeping the focus on how much academic experience, you know, when you, when you diagnose one of these kids, when you study one of them, how much academic experience and support is this kid getting? How much time are they spending in their classroom on these things? Uh, what are they trying to teach them? And at your description, man, they're they're leaving whole parts of it, hoping the kids will figure those out themselves, which means you can't possibly identify a, a learning problem in a kid like that. Uh, this We don't know what that kid could learn if he was given uh, the opportunity to learn the things that you need to learn to be a reader. And, and then, you know, there's always the quality things that you might teach something better than I would teach it. And therefore, in the same amount of time with the same curriculum, your kids might make better gains than mine would. But I could probably learn to do some of the things that you know how to do. So that to me, that's the key. Everything else is commentary. And, and you know, we have to sort of keep it there. It, it, it's a prescription for not just for classrooms, but but for those other tiers as well. Uh, that frankly, you can, you, you definitely can recite on, on one foot. You don't have to, you know, it doesn't take a, a huge amount of time to understand what needs to be done. Then you have to drill down, of course, to get the specifics because the details always matter. Mm. You know, I, it speaks to so many things, what you just said, but um, I'm thinking about the trend in current practice to rely on, computer-based and iPad-based interventions and assessments. And um, the, I, I'm going to guess that the quality of instruction and intervention is diminished substantially with that. Um, but we're moving in that direction, it looks like. They, computers have been found to be able to do certain things that we can't necessarily do as well as teachers, as people. Um, you know, if somebody is making a mistake over and over and over again. It is 
any teacher knows it's hard to stay patient. And you, you know, you want ah, you know, don't do that, you know. And and a computer doesn't do that. It just you know give you another try, and you know can do that endlessly, and and that's a good thing. Um, they, there are other things that they can see. They can collect diagnostic information that's certainly equal to what I can collect as a teacher. That all said, when we look at the reviews of research, the, the large meta-analyses that have been done, there was one that was part of the National Reading Panel. There have been, I think, three other ones supported by the U.S. Department of Education over the last 20 years or so. And they all keep coming up with the same conclusion that they haven't really advantaged teaching very much in any particular way, though you can definitely find some programs that have been successful in doing some limited things, but everyone keeps having great hope for them. <laughs> and, and so the conclusion of the National Reading Panel was there, there's not enough research to conclude that digitally you can improve kids' literacy, and yet there are some real possibilities out there that we're seeing some good demonstrations. And I, you know, it's it's maybe someday we'll we'll see some ways that it 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 works. But there are some programs that do a pretty good job of what they do and have some good research support. But, it, it, my, and this isn't my area of expertise, though I've read a certain amount of this work. Um, it's clear to me that in, in instances where it really is working and, and it's meeting that whatever the research standard is that the researchers set for the programs, they tend to be blended learning opportunities, not digital uh, mainly digital opportunities. And so I don't want to get into commercial programs and so on, but I can think of one big, popular, effective, and very expensive uh, program. And it's like half of it is digital. And the other half of what you do is all offline with the other boys and girls and with the teacher. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I, so I think it can have a role. Uh, but it's uh, at this stage, now computers probably don't do a very good job of teaching kids to read and, and and you know they might be able to do some particular things with particular populations there are some kids who might be kind of hinky and would you know about their problems adults are often very hinky about their adult literacy problems sitting down with a machine might seem less embarrassing initially and so it you know can have that kind of a benefit on the other hand <laughs> Right after I finished the Chicago Public Schools thing, one of the first things, professional experiences I had after was a local school district here in the Chicago area had a court, well, I guess it was a court case at the time, uh, a family of a child with a, a learning disability had uh, sued the school district because they had placed him on one of these computer programs. And after two years, his reading achievement had gone down and they wanted uh, him put in a, you know, a private learning disabilities oriented high school at the school district's expense. You guys have seen cases like this. Mm -hmm. And I looked at the program and I interviewed the kid and I, you know, I did all the stuff that essentially what the district and the parents had decided is they would both trust me to make a, a judgment about who had screwed up. <laughs> and, uh, what I found was that the kid said, you know, he'd actually liked the program for two or three months. But what that school had done is even though it was supposed to go like 90 minutes a day, some of it on computer, some of it with the other kids, what they did is stuck this kid in the library by himself and he did 45 minutes a day. And that was, so it was, at first it was great. You know, he was enjoyed playing the games and doing the activities. And 
at the end of about two or three months, he started to feel really isolated and cut off and stuff started to feel pretty repetitive and he started to hate it and nobody paid any attention and they didn't follow the program actually. So it was actually on this, Rachel, it was exactly the kind of case you were saying was very easy to say who, who had screwed up in this case. It was the school district, but the program itself really wasn't bad. If you'd actually done the whole non-digital thing, this kid just got, cream because everybody trusted the, the 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 technology instead of trusting the the people part of that and, and the importance even for a youngster who would like it for two or three months so <laughs> well i think that we could probably listen to you for a lot longer but i want to be mindful of your time but i'm hopeful if you don't mind that we could maybe do a speed round because we have sure. one, one good question and one good point that if we could do them both, you think that's okay? I'll do it. Okay, great. So the first uh, question is, um, as you were um, working with your school team to help them understand what was important in reading um, instruction, did you help them eliminate, did you decide what to eliminate in order to make instructional space for the essentials? Didn't decide what to eliminate, but did tell them the research on on certain things. So, for example, one of the big time eaters in elementary schools is, uh, and these days in secondary schools too, is is free reading, independent reading. Yeah. Uh, some of us really believe that independent reading is important, but then it has to be independent. That kids have to be choosing to do this and has to be part of their life, not part of the school's life. Uh, the research on independent reading at school has not been especially kind uh, in terms of its impact on kids' motivation for reading, the amount of reading that they actually do in their lives, or or for achievement, which I guess shouldn't be a, it's that surprising if it doesn't really change how much kids are reading. So, you know, we, we let them know things like that. But, you know, if a, if, if a school said, look, we're going to give two to three hours a day of reading instruction, we're going to teach all the stuff that Rachel and Tim would agree need to be taught. Uh, but we want to, you know, take 20 minutes later in our day and have the kids do this other thing. You know, I kept my hands off of that. I, I didn't, uh, didn't pick on them, but we did make sure people knew what the research had to say about things like that. So that's, that's how we handled it. Uh, I, I remember one school district, not Chicago, but one I was working with, with as, as a consultant, I couldn't persuade the teachers that I was right on this. So they spent a half an hour a day on words, a half an hour on fluency, half an hour on comprehension, half an hour on writing, and a half an hour on the motivational stuff that they like to do. I have no problem with that. If they want to do that, that's just perfectly fine. That doesn't get in our way at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think for this uh, point there, I read, um, I found on your website, a really nice blog that you might refer us to, um, to address it. But um, John mentions that the Shaywitz found that kids who had good phonics um, instruction uh, and help that were helped early, but then um, also developed later comprehension issues. Um, is that related to the morphology posts that you have on your on your blog? I think it's related to a lot of things, but let's just say language writ large. I know everyone is is hair on fire about vocabulary, and I'm certainly a big fan of vocabulary instruction and morphology. Certainly, uh, Peter, pe people like Peter and Jeffrey Bowers are doing some really interesting work there that your folks should know about. But uh, 
the National Early Literacy Panel looked at uh, predictions of kids' later comprehension based on their early language. Mm -hmm. And what we found is vocabulary by itself wasn't a very great predictor. That when you had a more uh, complete battery of, of, of language, early language tests like listening, comprehension, and syntax, including vocabulary, then you did a pretty good job. Then you could predict later comprehension. And, and so my hunch is that there are a lot of boys and girls whose language development overall, with all those different pieces to it, is sufficient for the kind of learning we want them to do in reading in kindergarten and first and maybe second grade. But that at some point, frankly, the, the need to use those more advanced language skills uh, starts to outstrip what these kids are getting in literacy. And so now the kid can decode, but he still can't read. And I think for a lot of disabled readers, a lot of kids that we label as dyslexic, initially it might have been a decoding problem, but that quite often instruction has dealt with that. That those kids can decode as well as kids that we consider to be good readers. And if that's the case, then there has to be some other components that are in the way. And, and if you buy the simple model, then that means you better look in the language bag uh, for those pieces of it. And yeah, morphology would certainly be one of those, but so would be syntax. And so would be listening comprehension. So would be teaching kids how to think about the organization of text, uh, cohesion. Uh, and, and in each of those areas, there are examples of explicit instruction that improves kids' reading achievement. And so I would say that whole area of written language needs maybe greater attention than we give it. Certainly more attention than teachers like me do. And, and I, my hunch is more attention than most school psychologists are giving it. And, and so we could use a little help there, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Awesome. Um, we are running out of time here, so um, I think we're going to have to wrap up. But I want to tell everybody watching, um, I am a huge fan of your blog. And uh, so I follow you on Twitter when you post, you know, you'll post there's a new entry on Twitter. And I'm like, I'm right there. And I've learned so much about things that I never thought about. And then also clarifying things that I'm like, oh, yeah, let me let me see what Shanahan has to say about that issue, because I see that in in my in my schools. Um, so I think that anyone who's wants some elaboration on some of the things that you've hit just a little bit on um, to check out your blog for sure. There's my blog and there are a lot of other resources that I've got linked in there. So it's kind of a, it's a good free one-stop shop where everything is, is research-based and, and I think your, your uh, viewers will find it useful. Mm -hmm. awesome. A lot of parents follow it too. And so it might be useful to even, you know, for some mm -hmm. of the, the families that you might be working with to point it out to them. Mm -hmm. For sure. And then um, thoughts on if somebody wanted to, if a school psychologist there is watching and not as familiar with, you know, what came out of the National Reading Panel, is there, is there a cheat sheet or where, where, where would, where would you go to find all the good stuff that came from the reading panel? Do we have to read the whole thing? <laughs> like, yeah, well, where go? <laughs> uh, on, on my website, there are two places you can go. One, you can go into resources and you can actually find the original report if you want that. Two, you can go into publications, which is my stuff. And there's a print publication in there that uh, was done by one of the Department of Education's labs that explains the findings of the National Re Reading Panel for Educators so that you might find that useful. Awesome. And it's all free again. Thank you. <laughs> That's great.
<laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for, for tuning in tonight. Mm -hmm. I know that it was such a big topic, and I could talk to you for hours and hours, but I will let you go back to <laughs> Thank you so much, folks. Have a good rest of the school year. Thank you. Thank you.